Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today I have two special guests on um, to talk about Herman Bovink and different aspects of his thoughts. Um, they come from the Edinburgh Reformation. I, I've learned from Dr. Eglinton it's not a uh, revolution, it's a reformation, because that's what Bovink would have said. Uh, I also learned it's not bovink, but I'm an American swine, so I say pensies instead of ponces, and I say bovink instead of bavink or anything like that. Um, But without further ado, uh, my two guests here are uh, Corey Brock and Gray Sutanto, or you might see Nathaniel Gray Sutanto. But uh, gents, thanks so much for coming on the podcast here. Thanks. Glad to be here. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, um, so Corey, can I just get get you to introduce yourself? What what are you up to nowadays since your time at uh, Edinburgh? Yeah, I live in Jackson, Mississippi with uh, my wife, and we have four kids, and I'm an assistant minister at First Presbyterian Jackson, so that's a PCA church, so I pastor full-time, and then I teach part-time at both Belhaven University and recently at RTS Jackson as well. Awesome, man. Yeah, a lot going on. Yeah, great. How about yourself? Yeah, thanks. I'm an assistant professor of systematic theology at RTS Washington ordained in the International Presbyterian Church uh, in the UK, and currently just coming off the uh, first fall semester teaching courses and now grading and examining papers. Yeah. Well, that's some, that's some fun stuff. It'll be a fun uh, week or two for you there. Uh, so I wanted to have you guys on to talk about uh, your your recent work in Herman Bavink, Bavink, whatever. And uh, it's it's super exciting because Every so often, there's just this this bovink drop, and you see all this new scholarship coming out. It's awesome. You guys have really been at the forefront of it, especially with um, the uh, annotated edition of Philosophy of Revelation here, which is just an awesome, awesome book. I had the old uh, like ghetto version from Amazon, which somebody just uh, copied. It was super, super weird. And then uh, also Christian Worldview, which I believe this was the first edition from from you guys. You guys. Um, translated this along with with Dr. Eglinton. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Um, it's Well, there's multiple editions in the Dutch form, but this mm. is the first English translation of it. Yeah, so it was a very important work, and we thought, man, we need to get this out in the English-speaking world. Yeah, and it, uh, so I have, a, I have a friend who did the cover at Crossway, and he was telling me a little bit about it, and I was like, ah, I don't know, man. Like, it's so little he was showing me, and... and uh, it came out super nice. They did it like the original or one of the original Dutch versions, like an old school book. But then I read it and it's this huge work of philosophy. It's amazing. And I did not expect it at all. So uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're seriously indebted. The English speaking community is indebted to you guys. It's, it's awesome. It's an awesome book. I hope to get into it later in our conversation here. Yeah, thanks. But what we're going to start on is um, your guys's works, uh, Corey's work, Orthodox Yet Modern, Herman Bovink's use of uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, and then also Gray's book, God and Knowledge, Herman Bavink's Theological Epistemology. So what I noticed in reading these books is that there's some overlap. You guys talk about the about similar things, though it's definitely from different perspectives. You both 
talk about Schleiermacher. Uh, Gray, I think in chapter seven, you start talking about him. You both talk about Thomas and Neo-Thomism uh, or Thomism. Corey, you mentioned that as well, even though that's more in Gray's part. Um, was there any collaboration between the two of you? I know you collaborated on these works. Were you collaborating during your uh, dissertation work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were working side by side, really, um, uh, in Edinburgh together at New College together. So um, uh, Gray and I and, and James Eglinton and, and a couple other guys as well were just always in conversation and um, uh, living living life together, really, for, for several years. Um, it was a Oh, Corey, Corey uh, froze up a little bit there. We didn't miss that last part. I think I think he said Gray's better at Dutch than him. I'm not sure. Is that what? <laughs> you missed it. That's yeah. That's what I said exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I did have a question about that. Who who out of the crew, who who's the best at, at Dutch? James. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's what, <laughs> he did live in Holland for for three years, so I think you know he learned how to pick up, basically speaking Dutch there on a day to day basis, okay. and uh, I think there's nothing that could replace that. We we hope one day that we can live an extended time in Holland, but right now it's it's mostly reading ability. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, to your question, Parker, uh, I don't know what Corey said at the end there, but Corey's was actually the first one to get to Edinburgh. Hmm. I mean, he did he did a master's degree there first before he did this PhD there, so it was the, one of the first. Well, he was the first bobbing student uh, under James there. And then I came on, I think, uh, in Corey's second year. And for a, about a year and a half or so, it was just us two working together with hmm. James uh, before other people came in. Like Bruce Pass, I think, was the third person. Um, so it was a very tight-knit, close, you know, bobbing community in Edinburgh that is now growing. I think there's about five or six people there now working hmm. on bobbing together there. So, yeah, I and Corey... I mean, the philosophy of revelation work, I think, came out of a conversation on, in, the, in the Edinburgh kitchen wow. where we were like, you know, in line, probably getting the hot water there or something. And then uh, we just said, you know, we need to produce something that could be easily accessible to a lot of people there. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely close collaboration. Man, that's awesome. So um, I, I alluded to it in the, in the opening about the uh, Edinburgh Reformation. And uh, I've seen I've seen you guys from afar. I've seen you on Reform Forum. You know, I've read your books and stuff like that. It seems like you guys are working your way through every facet of of Bovink. Is that intentional? Has that just kind of come out? Was this something that that uh, Dr. Eglinton kind of planned on, or is this kind of an accident of history? Well, yeah, fill us in. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think a part of it was accidental, but a part of it was also necessitated by the fact that when you're writing a doctoral thesis, right, you had to actually carve out space mm. where this is a unique contribution on your part. And uh, but we had a very collaborative effort as well, because, you know, as we're getting to know one another, as we are, you know, I and Corey working on really separate facets of Bobbing's epistemology, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, we were able to say, okay, what can we focus on that would complement one another without getting into a kind of, you know, competitive spirit, which sometimes could happen in, in, in the academy, right? So, but yeah, definitely very exciting. I mean, Corey's work, of course, on Bobbing's use of Schlarmarker and my work on epistemology. And then there's also, you know, Bruce Pass that talked about Bobbing's relation to lots of the German theological movements as well and about Christology particularly. And then you have, Cam Clausing, who's working on Doctrine of God and Boving's use of history in the in the context of the 19th century as well. Then you have 
someone like a Greg Parker right now who's working mm-hmm. on Bobbing's ethics, I believe. So definitely wanting to work on different things, but at the same time complementing each other's works. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Corey, when when you came in, did you plan on on looking at uh, Bob Inc.'s use of Schleiermacher or did that hit somewhere along the line? No, I, I didn't know exactly. Um, I knew I wanted to work in Dutch theology when I got there. And um, it, that came about just from a lot of time reading the text and a lot of searching and reviewing. But no, I did not know. Um, it was something I came to over my course of, of just the first year of being over there. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. So um, before we get too much further in, uh, there's a couple just introductory things that we should talk about. Uh, one is, you know, who who is Herman Bobbing for someone who just stumbled upon this podcast? Um, and, and what are his dates? Uh, come, come on, you guys or both you guys. Who, who was he and um, when do we locate him at? Uh, but his dates are 1854 to 1921. Um, he's uh, he's Dutch. He he was he's was born, raised in the Netherlands, lived, lived in the Netherlands his whole life. Um, he's at the peak of a, a turn from uh, pre-modernity to modernity, if you will, in the 19th century, and then crossing the border of the 20th century. So he's just kind of a um, a man who lived in, in, in times that were changing rapidly. Um, but yeah, 1854 to 1921 are his, his days. He dies in, in late July of 1921. Okay. Well, I, I think it's what's so interesting about, about Bob Inc. is that it seems like he kind of got lost for like a hundred years and then he's shown back up through, you know, largely through your guys' work over there in Edinburgh and he's right back in the conversation and it's applicable. And even though it's, it's old, it's, it's new, which is amazing. And I think a big part of that is the organic motif, uh, which, which Dr. Eglinton kind of started showing that uh, there's not two uh, Bovinks. There's not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Bovinks, but there's one unified Bovink who is eclectic in his thought because of this organic motif. And uh, so I thought maybe we could just jump in on um, the orthodox yet modern understanding of, of Bovink. It, it sounds like just from the title, Sounds like, you know, James Eglinton did all this work to unify Bavink, and then Corey comes along and he's saying, no, he's Orthodox and modern. And there's two, you know, I know you're not doing that. Um, Corey, can you explain to us how this is your whole, uh, your whole dissertation? Can you just briefly uh, sum up your dissertation for us? How is, how do you mean Bavink is Orthodox yet modern? Yeah, sure. Um, So, so, um, what we mean by those terms is that Bob Inc. is orthodox in that he's very typically a son of a secessionist free church background. Mm-hmm. So he upholds the three forms of unity, adheres to the ecumenical creeds. Uh, he lives a, a Protestant work ethic lifestyle. He's a Sabbatarian in all of those, all of those ways. So, um, but what, Bob, what James helped us understand was that, um, uh, a lot of times in the past, people had looked at Bobbing's corpus and they had looked at different texts in Bobbing's corpus and noticed at times you see a, a, a very confessional, uh, a reformed scholastic, exactly what you might expect. And then on the other hand, there are times in Bobbing's corpus where he's interacting with modern philosophy and modern theologies in a pretty surprising way. Uh, what James helped us understand is unlike previous uh, thinkers, there there aren't. Uh, Bobbing's 
not a dualistic thinker. There, there are not these moments where all of a sudden he's switched into his modernist impulse, that, he, that he's consistently orthodox and modern. What I was trying to show was that he is orthodox yet modern in that he is willing to use a thinker like Friedrich Schleiermacher in positive appropriation to adopt even some of the thoughts of Schleiermacher into his own corpus. And that, that remain in the domains of his confessional boundaries, if mm. you will. Um, so Gray, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think uh, how our works complement one another is that we try to take a, those texts in face value, basically. So we say, if Bavink is using orthodox sources here, then you know, show us how he's doing that. But at the same time, when he uses someone like a Schleiermacher or a German idealist or you know, a post-Kantian romantic philosopher, a mediating theologian, we don't take a look at that and say, wait a minute, he just said this about the orthodox guys. How does that fit into what he's saying here? It doesn't seem to fit. We just take that as his value and say, okay, in Bavink's own mind, he sees these moves and these uses of these different thinkers as compatible in some mm -hmm. way. So with that kind of hermeneutic of charity rather than hermeneutic of suspicion. I think that's the kind of basic modal shift that that helped inform how we read Bobbing after that. Yeah, that's so helpful. I, I uh, first read uh, any part of the, the dogmatics in my first year of seminary here, a couple uh, 2018 or something like that. And uh, Dr. Van Hooser um, required uh, volume two for first course. We read all through volume two. Some, some of us in the class were just blown away. Others were totally over their head. A lot of the folks who were really good with the languages had a really hard time with, with Bavink, uh, even though he, he's got languages in there, but the deep, rich philosophy and theology. And actually reading Bavink helped me understand Dr. Van Hooser's work, where, if, as you guys know, if you've read his work at all, he pulls from everyone. And I'm like, who is this guy? What does he actually believe? What's going on here? And I saw a similar vein that Oh, Bavink was doing it as well. It's it's an organism. He's saying there's truth all over the place. I don't have to be a Schleiermacherian in order to uh, appreciate a bit of, of insight from him. So I thought that was really helpful, even in appreciating my own professor. Um, something I found really interesting, Corey, in your work is that you said that uh, um, Bavink cites Augustine more than Calvin, which I thought was, was really, really interesting. Does what's the significance there? You know, I thought maybe since he's a reformed theologian, he's going to really be showing that he's in, in step with Calvin. Why do you think that he, he went out of his way to cite Augustine more so? Well, I mean, it's a similar idea to what we were just, just talking about. Number one, Bob Inc. was eclectic and, and like the, ref, but like the reformers, I mean, it's not even, even being eclectic, like the reformers, he wanted to show that the doctrines of grace and all the other doctrines of reformed Protestant theology are, patri are patristic doctrines mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand. Um, but he definitely saw Augustine as the, the great theologian of history. And I mean, he says that quite clearly in the reformed dogmatics. Um, and he sees a tight lineage, of course, between uh, Augustine and Calvin. But uh, Augustine is, is a is the father for him of, of Christian theology and history. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it is the case that there are significantly more, several hundred more citations of Augustine across the Reformed dogmatics uh, with, with Calvin coming in second. Schleiermacher is, is not far, far down that list. He's fifth or sixth most uh, cited. And, and not, that's not always uh, the most significant thing, these statistics. Um, hmm. um, of course, 
90 plus percent of the Schleiermacher references, references, for example, are, are very critical mm. uh, and they're very negative and, and very, very highly critical of, of his material dogmatics in particular. But no, but it is but it is the case that, that Augustine is premier. Bonaventure is, is another that's really significant um, across the corpus of Bavinck's dogmatics, as well as Aquinas uh, and several others. So. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um, uh, another question for, for both you guys. So it's called Reformed Dogmatics. His, his, probably his magnum opus, maybe it's not, but I, I think it's probably his magnum opus. Um, Reformed Dogmatics, and yet, you know, Burkauer uh, in his memoir described Bavinck, uh, his task as Catholicity. So to me initially, and maybe to some others, it seems kind of paradoxical that this dude could be striving for Catholicity and then name his magnum opus Reformed Dogmatics. Can you guys explain how his project, I mean, uh, Corey, you've been explaining it, but how can he be a reformed dogmatician and yet be striving for Catholicity? Go ahead, Greg. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a great question, Parker. I, I think, you know, right now we are in greater awareness that reformed theology is actually a, a Catholic oh. theology, Catholic in a small C, you know, where they retrieval projects of someone like a Scott Swain and a Mike Allen. We're very aware that Reformed theology is always drawn from the patristics and medieval insights, right? And Bavink says that very explicitly, not only in his preface to the first edition of the Reformed Dogmatics, where he says we have to draw from the great thinkers of the past, but also in other works like the Catholicity of Christianity and the Church, where he would say things like, uh, we, we must not only draw from the past thinkers, but we should also draw from the present contemporary thinkers mm. namely he really has this conviction that if you really believe in a broad catholicity then you have to believe that that catholicity extends not only to the past but also to the present and that's that's a huge uh, uh under mode of understanding of his own work i think for for bobbing so and and that might actually strike readers as quite new because catholicity is always talked about in reference to the past but not yet to the present but bobbing mm -hmm. applied clearly to both yeah, and, and not add to that, you know, I mean, one pithy way, I think, quick way of saying it is that Bobbing, Bobbing was a universalizer. Uh, he always was was um, going broad rather than narrow. And mm -hmm. and part of that was to, to for him, search for true, God's truth wherever it could be found. It didn't matter who, who the author was, as long as he could find truth. And uh, for him, you know, revelation is ubiquitous. He, he extended he extends the, the domain of general revelation in particular in, in his corpus. And in doing that, um, he, he finds so much more value in, in broader study and willingness to interact with, with um, sources that, that one wouldn't commonly interact with coming from his context uh, precisely because of, of his, his adherence to this concept of Catholicity, that Catholicity is an attitude, but it's a reality as well of, of, uh, the fact of of God's revelation to the world and of the church's scope and and in so many ways um, this idea of the Catholic and the universal kind of cohere in both how we act and think and write and interact and and um, and in so many ways for him so yeah and that's that's such a huge lesson I think that we need today as well uh, you know we can still be reformed we can still be Calvinistic we can still have convictions but we should also the, the the church is universal and there's 
God has his people in all sorts of different denominations. And that's something that uh, I want to learn from Bob Inc. I want to, I want to be firm in my convictions and I want to extend olive branches where I can. And I want to, you know, <laughs> I want uh, to be unified like, like Christ says his church will be. And I think that's something so fantastic about Bob Inc., who held such strong convictions and yet could appropriate even from Schleiermacher, which is, is kind of crazy. I would, I'm scared to do that. Right. Well, you see this too in, in his own uh, in his own lifetime. One of the things that he and Abraham Kuyper were trying to do was to join two different denominations, mm-hmm. and, and there was a massive uh, quarrel about that and, and debates about that in the in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. And, and Bob Inc. appealed to the Catholicity of the faith to say that uh, even within Reformed theology, there, that we need to have a broad. Ref- Reformed ecclesiology that that include um, t- two different denominations that were existing alongside each other at the time in the Netherlands. And in 1892, uh, Bob Inc.'s denomination, his tradition, his free church background joined with another separatist tradition from the National Church of, of uh, the Netherlands um, to, to join a new, a new denomination in 1892. So you see that even playing out for him at the ecclesiological level yeah. and what he was pushing for and fighting for, uh, as an elder of the church. Yeah. So, um, that's it. That's a really interesting point. And, uh, from, from reading Dr. Eglinton's work, from listening to you guys on various podcasts, it seems like Bob Inc's, um, his his focus on Christianity uh, and the Catholicity may have even increased as as um, the Dutch were receiving uh, Nietzsche's work, and and he was focusing more on Christianity. Is that is that true? Have I misinterpreted that? Do do you guys see a shift and a broadening in in Bobbing's, uh scope, or or is that has it been there the whole time? I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. I do think that you know James's biography particularly has shown that. Bavink, alongside with his works on Reformed theology and Calvinism, started to focus as well on defending Christianity as a whole. That Christ, the Christian faith is the broad and capacious vision of life and reality that is in direct contrast to a kind of Nietzschean holistic nihilism that you would get uh, to the turn to the 20th century, right? So I think that's definitely the case. And also just in his um, philosophical and apologetic interest. He wanted to show the relevance of the Christian faith in all areas of life very clearly. So, you know, he did works on pedagogy, works on adolescence, works on classical education, social relationships, ethics, and so on uh, at, at the later end of his career. I think that's part of his desire to show that Christianity continues to make claims about public realities and it's continually relevant despite the challenges of modernity and also of nihilism. Yeah, that's so huge. He, what a gigantic figure. It's so crazy because, I mean, uh, I got his essays too, and he's got essays on psychology, and he's got it all over the map. He's just this polymath of a dude who, you know, I would say he, he's very, very philosophical, but he's very rigorous and very theological as well to get into all aspects of the the human personality, human psyche, which uh, he also incorporates these these modern terms, as Corey, you showed in your work of self, subject, ego, consciousness, which are very um, a modern uh, understanding of the of the self. Um, and that's where he starts to appropriate from from Schleiermacher and Schleiermacher's uh, modernity. Um, I actually so I I'm a Vantillian as uh, as great, you know, I love Love me some Van Til, and I will quote him in any paper I can. I have to quote C.S. Lewis, 
and I have to quote uh, uh, Van Til. And I quoted um, something from Defense of the Faith, and it was, uh, for man, self-consciousness presupposes God-consciousness. And I cited Van Til, and on, on the notes, Dr. McCall wrote, Schleiermacher. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, dude. That's clearly Van Til. But I got that, you know, third hand from Bavink's appropriation of and, and Van Til trying to follow in Bavink's lead. Uh, Greg or Corey, can you explain to us uh, that idea of of self consciousness and God consciousness as as Schleiermacher, you know, put put it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, on the, on the one hand, self consciousness is, is just an immediate awareness of oneself as a as a self as mm. an I. So the term immediate there is being used to signify that. Um, one does not uh, form a syllogism every time they need to be aware that I have an ego, that there is an identity that, that is at the base of all my actions, of all my thoughts, of all my speech. Uh, we do not think that into existence. It is not the case that I think, therefore, I know I am. No, it, it's that I am and I am thinking hmm. all the time. And there is an, an immediate intuition, an immediate consciousness of me being me. And uh, what Bobbing saw in Schleiermacher in the notion of immediate self-consciousness is a big emphasis on the givenness of the self contra other enlightenment expressions of where the self comes from. So for example, uh, without getting into, into the details of this, cause it, it's, it's quite difficult, but, Kant, uh, as Schleiermacher critiqued Kant, as Bavink critiqued Kant, as many have critiqued Kant, lost the self in the midst of consciousness. And the self became, for Kant, an illusion, like God, you know, because the self is not an object of the senses, because the self can't be touched or tasted or, or felt in, in some kind of uh, empirical way. Kant really gave up the self to an illusion, like he gave up both the concepts of God and the world. Well, Bavink, as he says in Philosophy of Revelation, very famously, it was Schleiermacher and not Kant that gave us a better sense of the self, not of autonomy, but of dependence. So with Schleiermacher, the early, the early way of saying this, the, the, the easiest way of saying this is that Schleiermacher helped Bavink see in a modern grammar, in a modern philosophical grammar, that there are are good philosophical reasons for talking about how the self is given, it's received, it's not thought or uh, it's not autonomous, it's it's not an illusion. And of course, Bobbing had a reason. He said, "Well, I can I can tell you exactly why that is. It's because the self comes from God. It's the gift of God." And actually, Bobbing wants to go on from Schleiermacher's grammar of uh, the immediate self-consciousness and move into how we can actually open up our concepts of general revelation, subjective general revelation with this concept of immediate self-consciousness of the givenness of the self, that there's actually a common operation of the spirit in that reality. So I I can keep going about this for for way too long. So I'm going to stop. That's, that's so great. And, uh, Gray, you, you talked a little bit about that in, I think, in your later chapters in your own work about, uh, you know, the unconscious and God's revelation there. I wanted to ask you guys, how does that relate with the the census divinitatis? Does, does uh, Bobbing put Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher's understanding of uh, self-consciousness and dependence in 
conversation with the, I'm, I'm sure he probably did the census, right? He's a, a good Calvinist himself. What do you guys, in, anything pop up in your heads there? Yeah, definitely. I think the clearest statement of this is his, in his chapter on general revelation and the wonderful mm-hmm. works of God, where he very clearly says Calvin's sense of the divine is the feeling mm-hmm. of dependence, which is just wonderful uh, as a very clear statement there. And this is another thing we try to bring to bear too, is that we got to read the reformed dogmatics alongside and in mm-hmm. light of his later works as well. And I think it's wonderful works of God. He tries to really distill down the essence of his mature dogmatic reflections there. And he says that very clearly and the feeling of dependence as the sense of the divine, I think goes really well with what Calvin says, which is that it is not a doctrine first learned in school. It is a, it, it is something that we've mastered from our mother's womb hmm. that even though we try all of our best to suppress, it is never gone. Now it's, that's a little bit different than what planning says. planning says because of the fall, the sense of the divine right. can be faulty, can be malfunctioning, could actually not work at all. Cause it's a, it's a purely a capacity that triggers. Yeah. It's you like know, your eyes or something. Your, your yeah. eyes can go bad. Your ears can go bad. Your right. sense of the divine can go bad. Right. Exactly. And I think for, for Calvin and Schlarmacher, what Boving sees, this is Boving's view is that it is an ever present intuition that is the precondition for any possibility of knowing or thinking at all. So I think, I think what, what came out in our reading is that for Boving general revelation primordially in a subjective self is that pre-categorical intuition of the world and God. Hmm. So by pre-categorical, that's a very technical term. It's, mm-hmm. it's a post-Kantian term that says that the intuitions from the world that are bare, that are in Kant's own thought, you know, to be categorized by the categories of the mind. Mm-hmm. What Schlarmacher and Boving does is that they isolate that intuition, the givenness that the categories work with and they say that's the life of the unconscious and unconsciously we are always aware of god just as we're always aware of the world Hmm. and i think that's incredibly helpful that to to bring to bear the riches of the classical reformed faith to the very post-kantian talk discourse of the unconscious life the psychological life that is prior to explicit cognition well, let me add to that, too, because that that what Greg just said there is exactly why Bobbing likes the term from Schleimacher uh, feeling, gefühl, because feeling there does not it does not mean emotion, it, um, which is a common mistake that people make. But a feeling is the word that Schleimacher wants to use uh, to describe the intuition of an in, imperceivable object. Hmm. So. God cannot be seen with the with the eye, physical eye. The world cannot be seen either. You can't see the world, the, the totality of, of existence, what they mean by that. Nor can you see the self. So self, world, and God are not objects of physical perception. Yeah. Right? But from the mothers, from from the earliest time as a child, you know, as as the Psalms put it, when the baby goes to mother's breast, they start to awaken in their as their self-consciousness awakens. They begin to awaken to both the fact of themselves and the fact of relative dependence on another human being Mm. in that the feeling of absolute dependence awakens. And that feeling is the intuition of an imperceivable dependence on absolute existence, on something that is totally not creaturely, yeah. right? 
Um, and and it's important to, to make that note that that feeling here is not uh, about a, your emotions, but it's a it's a philosophical term in this discussion um, that that fills in the the gap of the imperceivable. Mm. That's that's really helpful. That note on uh, feeling and and also the the child analogy so helpful. And, and those three transcendentals uh, that. Uh, that got me in trouble when I was trying to think through this before because I thought, well, okay, so Bavink is using uh, transcendental language. He's he's using the three transcendentals from Kant, but Kant said we didn't have knowledge, as you guys said earlier. We didn't have knowledge of these three things. Um, Bavink, in turning to Schleiermacher, says we do have knowledge of these things. Is um, let me think. So Corey, you you talked about like a um, an immediate and a, and a temporal uh, consciousness or knowledge is. Is the knowledge of God mediated, um, or is it? Do we have knowledge of God in virtue of our identity that we're made in His image, so we have it immediately, or is it? Does it still come through um, something, some kind of our, our senses? Yeah, what do you think about that? So, what's immediate in this discussion is the self-consciousness, okay. not not uh, the experience of God, if you mm. will. Okay. So, of course. Uh, What's Im- immediate is uh, without any other mediation, I know my, I, I am being I, right? Mm-hmm. Everything I do, uh, the I, the ego, my ego, my identity is coming forth. Um, mm-hmm. so in immediate self-consciousness, we experience the feeling of absolute dependence. Mediated, we, we know this theologically, it's mediated by general revelation. By God's by God's cond- condescension, by God's determining to come into the world and to to give life to me, right? So my self consciousness every moment is being upheld by the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's that is being mediated by God's condescended revelation, right? Of course, there's no immediate knowledge of God in the typical sense of dogmatic theology, right? We we can't have an immediate knowledge of God as God is in himself. Yeah. But that's mediated by his condescended revelation. But when, but in this discussion of self-consciousness, what is immediate is consciousness of self. That that's what's immediate Um, experience of consciousness of self, that we are awoken to the feeling of absolute dependence on a holy other. And and so is it um, then like a, a reflexive knowledge that once you kind of, once you, reflect on the fact that you are an I, you realize that I must be dependent on something greater than myself. Right. And so there's, there's both relative and absolute dependence, right? Mm. Relative dependence happens when baby comes to mother. When, when, when I see you guys, I'm experiencing a moment of, of the self-consciousness of relative dependence. Um, because in this moment I cannot be what I am as a pot, as a podcast in, participant without you, you, right. I'm mm-hmm. dependent. Um, and, and, uh, you know, Schleimacher turns this into a very rational proof for the existence of God as well. I mean, it's not only, he doesn't leave it in the domain of feeling and intuition. He says that's where it, it begins and it awakens and it's a fact there, mm-hmm. but also he turns it into, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a proof for the existence of God by terms of, by terms of causation as well. Uh, that's, relative, all of us in relative dependence are are given. We're all given self. Yeah. Nobody is thinking their self up. Nobody is, has brought themselves forth. Right. We we have to absolutely depend on some absolute. 
I love that so much. And I think that that, I think it does uh, relate with, with uh, Van Til's transcendental argument. I actually think this is what Descartes was trying to do though, although I, I don't like the way he did it, but, but he, in talking about the cogito, he said, you know, I think therefore I am. And then immediately he goes into his ontological proof talking about, well, I can't, I didn't exist, uh, you know, necessarily. So there must be something like me that did that I depend on. And, it's interesting trying to think through, you know, because I inherited I inherited this view of of Descartes that he's the boogeyman, and uh, in looking through him through kind of these different lenses, seeing is what was he really trying to say? Maybe maybe still the boogeyman, but Gray, this gets into some more of your uh, epistemology about uh, awareness and interpreting Hermann Bavinck. Was he a a proto reformed uh, epistemologist? Uh, what do you, what do you think um, about the immediate awareness of of God or the knowledge of God and the senses? Like, how how are you thinking through this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think first of all, to your Descartes comment, uh, I think if you imbibe Bavinck's spirit enough, nobody mm. becomes a boogeyman. I think that's yeah what's so refreshing about Bavinck is that, and that's the thing we're trying to re- recover with this orthodox yet modern thing. We're trying to say that for Bavinck, literally no one is a boogeyman, whether you're mm. talking about Plato or Kant. He says no one gets a priority and no one is outside of the balance here. We can't actually use everyone because of God's general revelation, mm. common grace. So mm. that's incredibly refreshing. So with regard to the awareness of God and also of Bavinck in relation to the Walter Storff and Plantinga, I try to show that there is definitely some commonality. And this is also in touch with what Corey was just saying just now. If you take Bavinck's view of general revelation producing that pre-conscious feeling Mm -hmm. and awareness of relative and absolute dependence, then what you get is that the proofs of God's existence might be helpful, but they're not necessary for you to articulate how it is that people already know God, Mm -hmm. right? So in other words, uh, people know God apart from rational argumentation, People know God apart from conscious cognitive reasoning. Um, there's 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 this feeling that undergirds it all. That is the starting point for all. Now the difference with Walter Storff and Plantinga, apart from that structural similar, similarity, is that for Walter Storff and Plantinga, because you're drawing so much from Thomas Reed, uh, I don't think they can get behind a propositional understanding of hmm. the knowledge of God. In other words, for them. You know, the sense of divinitatis is triggered by particular experiences of the outside world. And then, lo and behold, there's suddenly a properly basic belief that there is such a thing as God. Yeah. Right. But how do they justify? I mean, how do they define, sorry, a, a properly basic belief? Well, it's a warranted true belief. It's a warranted true belief given externalist conditions obtained. For Bavink, however, here's, here's, here's the kicker, I think, for a lot of analytic guys. Uh, is that for Bavinck, there is such a thing as non-propositional knowing. Mm-hmm. And this is this is really difficult to uphold. And I have actually tried to show in other works that Heideggerian language is useful here, hmm. that in our embodied awareness, there is a non-conceptual awareness of things that is yet not blind, right? And, and Heidegger's understanding, you know, would be the example of the chess master who intuitively knows what to do apart from knowing exactly how he got there. It's you when you're thinking about your philosophy paper, but you're driving without thinking about it. And then you got home without even being aware that you got yeah. home, right? Your body knows things in such a way where even if your mind is completely somewhere else, you are aware of what you're doing in a, in a teleological way, in a non-blind way. And, and so what Bavink starts, what's, what starts to emerge then is that 
the awareness of God is this unconscious given that could be very much present, even if your mind is thinking about something else, right? And so uh, that that gives us a more romantic picture. I try to argue yeah. in, in that chapter on Walter Servant Planga. It, it gives us a much more romantic and German inspired, to be to be frank, understanding of why it is that awareness of God is a is a given rather than something that is Reedian. Uh, in the planting in Wolterstorff sense, where you know you're triggered by something and then you 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 believe in God suddenly, right? So it's, that is more of a you know to use a, to use an analogy. Wolterstorff and planting this view is more like a there's a thunderstorm and then you hear a lightning and then you believe in God. Hmm. Whereas Bobby and Schlarmarkers is more like you're swimming, you're swimming in the middle of the ocean hmm. and you can't get rid of the water around you. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think it, it it does make sense with the you know with the phenomenon of scripture. Romans one, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You know, creation is continue. We're swimming in this creation. We ourselves are creation, and we're continually trying to push that back down. No, no, no. I don't want to think about that. Yeah. Well, and some people have have struggled a little bit with how much Bobbing does downplay the proof, the traditional yeah. proofs in in the Reformed dogmatics. But I think it's helpful in in what Grace just said. And all of this that we've been talking about really comes together um, to know that that there's a philosophical grammar that's underlying his reasons for downplaying the traditional proofs. And, and uh, really, the philosophy that, that Gray's talking about right there makes so much sense of the whole picture of the trends of Dutch, of the Dutch theologies in general and modernity. Yeah. Um, and and Bobbink what is at the center of really articulating that early philosophy, um, uh, that epi- early epistemology and, and, and what that, what that needs to look like. So. And that's so helpful. So, uh, great moving, moving more into your, uh, work. So we've already mentioned a little bit about, uh, the planning, a uh, debate and, and stuff like that. Where, where can we fit, uh, Bob Inc. You, you talked about a classical realism versus like a modernism versus, um, you know, a naive realism, um, where where do you finally put him? So he's got this organic motif, which allows him to pick and choose what he thinks is true from all different systems. Are we able to place him somewhere? Uh, where do you place him? Yeah, I think, uh, well, there's two, two comments maybe to say. First is that contrary to popular belief, especially in Reformed evangelical thought, which uh, I think watered down this very much is that there's multiple kinds of realisms mm-hmm. just as there's multiple kinds of idealisms right yeah. people think as the realism versus idealism thing as like two poles on the opposites of one another when really you, you take a look at the literature and you know joshua ryan ferris which you might be aware about mm-hmm. uh who's working on retrieving barclay and idealism there's an argument there that barclay idealism is a kind of hyper realism as well because you're constantly in touch with the thoughts of god right, right. and then on the other hand in, in realism there is naive realism which says that the mind doesn't do anything to your contact with the world i would actually put probably uh thomas reed there because concepts don't mediate things concepts are just you know your knowledge of the thing in itself mm-hmm. um and then there's there's critical realism that says that the mind does play a role in in influencing, constructing the the the, the knowledge that you have of reality, but at the same time it still accesses reality. Yeah. Um, and then in the idealist perspective, those are just two kinds of realism, just more. But but in the idealist perspective, there's subjective idealism where ficta fits, where your knowledge of the world is really just willed by you in the kind of existential moment. 
um, maybe the existentialist, the classical existentialist, we think about like Jean-Paul Sartre, maybe we, we could fit him there too. And then there's absolute idealist, where you have someone like a Hegel, uh, and then you also have what I try to show in my work, an empirical idealist, which mm-hmm. you're thinking to yourself, an empirical idealist, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I thought an empiricist is necessarily a realist, mm-hmm. where you have an, a lesser known figure like Edward von Hartmann, mm-hmm. who says that you take your sense perception for granted, but how is it that your sense perception can perceive the world? Well, it's because yourself and the world participate in a greater reality. Uh, namely this unconscious absolute. So there's just multiple kinds. And it's almost like some idealists are talking about realism through different language, right? And so you yeah. got to really parse these things out. And one, so that's the first thing to say, the complexity of it all. The second thing to say is what Boving himself says, which is in Philosophy of Revelation, chapter three, where he actually argues against naive realism, mm-hmm. which he calls naive naturalism there, this idea that your perceptions just perceive the thing in itself without any kind of mediation on the one hand and subjective idealism on the other. So he says that his view is in between naive realism on the one hand and subjective idealism on the other. Hmm. And so in this middle ground, you can use someone like an Edward von Hartmann who says that you participate in a greater whole and that's why you can know the thing. You can also use someone like an Aristotle who says that you you can know things because uh, of, of this this correspondence between you and the thing, right? But then you could also use uh, uh, lots of other thinkers in between that doesn't compromise the fact that you can know the thing, but at the same time, there is a working of the mind that influences your knowledge of the thing. And there's so many thinkers you can use as long as you don't compromise those two two poles, you might want to say with Boving. Yeah. So... I don't want to identify him with just one particular thinker, but as mm-hmm. long as that thinker doesn't compromise those two poles, he would freely use it. That's basically what we yeah. have to say. Yeah. So um, I've noticed that a lot of philosophers and Christian philosophers want to call everyone a critical realist. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, he was a critical realist. Just just toss them all in there. Um, I don't want to do that with Bobbing, but it seems like that position between those two poles of naive realism and subjectivism is kind of a critical realism because there's Bob Inc. is allowing a place for the categories. There is mediation going on. Um, but uh, you do actually get to what do you say? You get to the, the thing in itself, the, the ding yeah. on sick. Yeah, definitely. That that somehow, though the categories of the mind does influence your perception of the thing, it still represents the thing yeah. in itself. And so you have access to it. And and so but but the thing is what Bobbing also says in numerous places is that if you don't have theological categories of organism yep. of trinity then critical realism falls apart then yes. you can't account for the gap why is there a gap how do right. i cross the gap how do i have faith that my representations represent the thing in itself we don't know we can't know unless we have a theology that undergirds why it is the case yeah i i noticed that in in reading like donald davidson and some other people who are uh, arguing against like correspondence because like they think that this gap leaves room for skepticism and that's because they're not Christians. They That's right. If you have this gap there, wh- why is there a gap? How do you know what's on the other side of the gap? If you don't have a theological reason, we've been made this way. Um, planning a goes that route, but then he wants it to say, you no, know, there's direct awareness and then comes into the, the kind of problems that you brought up earlier. I yeah. I love the organic motif because of, because of its relevance here. Um, can you explain how the organic motif is a theological category that 
um, helps us hold on to the gap and hold on to to realism and, and Coria as well um, as it uh, informs your your work as well. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think I think one of the things that I suggest in my own work is that if you go with the Thomas Reed route, mm -hmm. I think the organic motif becomes unnecessary to mm -hmm. account for how you know things because you get rid of the gap, right? There's this yeah. awareness of the thing in itself. You don't need to account for the the bridging of the gap, so to speak, because in, in, in Reed's work, you just know the thing. And as long as you have good faculties that work, however you want to account for that, maybe he does want to go to the existence of God there. But you don't need this organic motif where there's an organic linking between mm -hmm. the representations and the thing in itself, right? That you would get in Bavink. I think the reason why Bavink wants to use the organic motif is because he wants to say that there is a gap, but there's a way to bridge the gap, namely by organism. Yeah. And why is there an organic link between the two of you? Because the whole world is shaped in this organic way where things are diverse realities. They're linked to one another. They're connected to one another. Uh, you, you see that ethically because you're all connected to Adam as a federal head. You see that in your families because your family is involved in one another. You see that epistemologically when you know things that are different from you. And yet at the same time, these categories in your mind can mediate truly the things outside of yourself. Yeah. So the organic motif presupposes the existence of gaps. And, and But yet at the same time, there's a way to overcome these gaps. Hmm. Well, that's why he says very... Uh, quite often that faith is at the ground of all of all knowing yeah. uh, that there's there's a there's an, a, a faith that everybody has to um, take hold of to, to know anything to endeavor out your front door and and to assume that subject and object are in some real relationship yeah. but you know to put it real simply he says that the logos is the maker and mediator of both subject and object mm -hmm. and that there's a gap and the answer is that the son of God mediates the not the, the knowing activity of the knower and the fact of the objective world outside of them and unites them organically at all times. It's an operation of common grace. And that means that the self and knowledge are both gifts of God given in God's common grace to the world. So oh, it's, it's so exciting. I love it so much. Um, I, I got into Kant and I thought, you know, it, this seems right. This seems like we do have some categories of understanding going on, but I, I want to know the thing in itself. When I reach out to grab a book, I want to know that it's actually a book and it's not like this snake, but my categories interpret it as a book, you know, it's crazy. And Bavink provided that organic motif, which makes sense of it. And, and Ronald Nash, um, he tried to do this with Gordon Clark back in the day and say that Gordon Clark had this preformation theory uh, that we were preformed for the world. And so, the reason we have whole, uh, holes in our mind with for square pegs and we have square pegs out there that we can put in was because we were preformed and, and Clark said no. But really, Bavink is saying that, that we live in this organic whole. We've been made for this world and this world's been made for us. We all fit together. And it gets me all excited because um, Hume criticized Barclay or one of the one of the dudes and saying, you know, we don't live in this mechanistic world. Maybe we live in a, a maybe the world's like a giant carrot. And then after reading Bavink, I go, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a big old or organic carrot. We're like an organic thing. That's not scary anymore, Hume. Like, it actually makes sense of the subject and object relation because we live in an organ, because the universe is an organism made um, within unity and diversity, like the ad intra unity and diversity. And 
that's something that that I get from you guys, Corey. I don't know if I found a uh, a statement of it, you know, in in uh, in in your work, in Dr. Eggington's work, in Gray's work. It's like Trinity ad intra leads to uh, you know organism organic knowing ad extra, right? Corey, did you have one, Corey, or, or can you come up with one for us right now? You mean a little a little pithy organic? That's right. That's right. That's right. No, no, I, I just stood on on the grounds of the one James already wrote, and uh, <laughs> what what I did was was uh, do it more of a, on a theological method uh, dictum that that mm. says that um you know that bobbing that that bobbing is orthodox yet modern that there's no getting outside of that domain at this point that that that's those are those are the categories one now has to work in yeah so that's what I tried to establish so. yeah we did a great job on that um. Yeah, another thing to say too to that yeah. Parker is that um, with with Boving's approach and Corey, I wonder what you think about this too. I think he was actually quite ad hoc and pragmatic about it. Mm-hmm. I think he's saying, given these post-Kantian conditions, here's what we can say, given our theology, given our Trinitarianism. And I think I think what what you start to do therefore with Boving is that you never reject a particular new movement. You actually say, how can I use my theological categories? to speak into this new philosophical movement with its own philosophical grammar under its own terms oftentimes. And so if another movement came about epistemologically, I think Bavink would probably do the same, but something different in correspondence. Like if you were around today and he was seeing, I think, analytic theology and analytic philosophy, he would try to speak into that too, using analytic categories and terms as well. And I think if you don't have this organic way of seeing things as Catholicity that Bavink has, what you're going to end up doing is say, man, Kant is really doing something different and we just got to go back. Yeah. We just got to reject everything here for the last 150 years or so in Bobbing's own day and go back to 17th century, 14th century, whatever, or ancient world, right? Philosophy, you want to just retrieve stuff from there. And I think what Bobbing would say is you're cutting yourself off yeah. from the modern milieu. You're cutting yourself off from the riches of God's common grace, even in the present day. And that's such a relieving and open and freeing way, I think, of doing theology and philosophy. It's really exciting. Well, that's why dogmatics has to be re- rewritten for each generation, because it needs to be in the grammar of the day, answering the questions of the day. And uh, there was a conference some time ago asking, uh, is is Bobbing's dogmatics for today? And I, and I think if Bobbing was around to answer that question, he would, you know, he would say in a way, no, uh, it, it's a model and of course, insofar as we're going to absolutely uphold the confessional truths that he upholds theologically, mm-hmm. yes. But but he, what he's given us is a is a is a model of a theological method yeah. for for as we construct dogmatics in our own time. So I agree well, with that. Well, so Corey, on that note, and Gray, um, is the so Doc, Dr. Eglinton wanted to ground the organic motif in Reformed theology, going back to Calvin. And I, I, I wrote a review of it and I said, you know, that was probably his weakest argument uh, of the book. His, his argument was full of strong arguments. And I wrote it from a call. I had to write something negative. Um, was the organic motif something that um, I think I think you guys are probably going to say no. Was that something that, that came along that he appropriated from um, from the post-Kantians or, or was that? Uh, did he appropriate the language uh, in order to make sense of a reformed thing? Can you guys explain that for the audience? Yeah, definitely. I think that the language of it came from a post-Kantian, you know, it's idealist context. It's pretty much ubiquitous. So any 
post-Kantian idealist romantic, even someone like Schlarmacher, you, you take a look at his speeches, he talks about the organic world, the organic self all the time. Mm-hmm. And then you go to um, Eduard von Hartmann, again, the, the German absolute empiricist idealist, he uses it all the time. So it's ubiquitous in the 19th century. And then Kuiper uses it ubiquitously. I mean, you can't turn a page in Kuiper where he doesn't talk about something organic versus something mechanical. And I think I think what Kuiper and Bavinck were up to is basically to say, hey, there's a lot of good here in these romantic ways of talking about the organic. Can we look back in our own reformed confessional heritage and actually show to this romantic world of the organic that reformed theology can provide a more robust Hmm. and more rational, more satisfying organicism than the very people that came up with organicism in the first place. Yeah. And I think... Parker, you, you mentioned, you know, Dr. Van Hooser's work earlier, too, as and, and understanding his work. I think whoever you find today who are attacked by both the left and the right, that's someone who is imbibing Bavings and Kuiper's yes. organic vision. Because when Bavings and Kuiper used this kind of language, they were attacked by both left and right. They mm-hmm. say, hey, you're, you're sounding like a modern here by, by those who are more conservative, you know, you've been polluted by Leiden, maybe you're, you're too engaged in culture. We got to go back to your Dutch Orthodox roots, but then the more progressive or liberal idealist, you know, theologians and philosophers would say, no, you guys are just talking about this in our language, but you guys are just fundamentalists. You guys are just Calvinists. You know, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? And I think which, which theologian and philosopher today are being attacked in the same way. Mm -hmm. Conservatives are saying you're way too, too, you know, compromising. But then, you know, the more liberal guys are saying, you're way too conservative. You're not really one of us. Yeah. Who, who's in that kind of mold? And, and I do think that that kind of theologian that you can think of, uh, I don't know, you could probably name a few, Parker. Uh, that's someone who's imbibing that kind of spirit. Yeah. Pastorally, I, I do think Tim Keller comes to, to mind, but that's hmm. that's just me. You just triggered all, of the, well, all the audience. I, yeah. I know, I know. Well, it's, it's important to say, too, that as much as the organic the term and, and the, the philosophical concept was, was a product of the post enlightenment milieu that, I mean, Bobby also understood the, the organic idea to be, to just be basically biblical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, you see Kuiper and Bobby ground so much of their theology and, in, in these or, organism metaphors of the body and its parts of, of the leaven uh, uh, of the, um, the mustard seed of, uh, of the, the vine and the branch. So all of these concepts, these biblical concepts are at the background as well of, yeah. of, of the organism motif. So. Well, so following up on that, then um, I totally agree that, well, this is funny here. We are talking about Bavink and he would probably say, you guys should have written your own systematic theologies for your modern day. Don't worry about me, but it's like, we are worried about you, man. You laid down the, uh, the, the foundation for us. Um, when it comes to postmodern, the postmodern context, whether we live in it or not, whether we're in a, a deep modern, you know, there's debate on everything, including that. How how do we also appropriate postmodern um, theologies, postmodern philosophy into our uh, schemas, into our theologies as well? How, how do we go about using the organic motif in, in that kind of context? Are there certain ones that are just off limits? Maybe, you know, like feminist theology is out. Uh, putting you guys on the spot, you, you can get <laughs> this is destroyed here if you say something wrong. Yeah, it's a huge question. I mean, and and um, 
the activity of doing what Bob Inc. did with the postmodern philosophies, right? And there are so many, it is a career long lifetime project. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's difficult to, I think, answer the question in any detail uh, because of that fact. But I mean, you see, I think you see examples of this right now. You see J Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, mm -hmm. the guy who I think has done just that in, in the spirit of Bob Inc. Has, has done something very similar. His book, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, takes an yeah. initial jab at doing exactly some of the things that we're talking about here, learning from postmodernity and, and, and the best, and we're talking about the best of postmodernist thinkers. Um, um, and, and there are a number of others. I mean, and Kevin Van Hooser as well is one that has and his work with with um, some of the uh, some of the uh, people like Rakur, for example, uh, and others. So people are doing it, uh, and I think it's a it's a very worthy endeavor. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we can also mention Christopher Watkin at Monash University, um, and then his work on Foucault, Deleuze, uh, Derrida, right? And the fact that you know the thing is. The thing is, when you want to do something like what Bobbing is doing, you have to be really, really well-versed in that thinker that you yeah. want to engage with. And so you want to understand in its own terms and show how theology fulfills, subversively fulfills, to use Johann Bobbing's term, that particular thinker. And if, to be honest, if, if Bonaventure could do that with Plato, Aquinas could do that with Aristotle, so could we with anyone here today, right? Yeah. I love that that uh, language as well. Subversive, subversively fulfill. I'm actually I'm trying to do that um, when we're done here. I got to go write a paper on Donald Davidson. I'm trying to subversively fulfill his triangulation argument in a Bavinkian way. So we'll see if if it's successful or not. Um, mm -hmm. But so uh, Corey, you talked about how you know in in Bavink's estimation, modern theologies have replaced. Um, They've they've put apologetics at the head of theological disciplines in order to provide a foundation for theology, and and how theology kind of has, has lost its own principium in the process. Um, where we're at historically now, I I keep on wanting to bring Boving back today because I think it's so applicable. But I, I need help, like thinking through. Do we do we turn back and say we need our own theology needs its own principia? Let's just. I don't want to say it in a way that diminishes it, but let's kind of just start again. Um, or do we say, no, this is where we're at. Apologetics, philosophy, kind of the start. We'll use the organic motif and subvert stuff and then work our way back. Any any thoughts on on the place of theological principia and whether we can get back to that or not? Yeah, well, let, let me set that maybe in historical context a little bit. I mean, uh it, it, the the fact of placing apologetics at the head of dogmatics or systematic theology is a product in the 19th century of responding directly to Kant's separation between knowing and thinking, right? And so uh, for Kant, you can think about God's self in the world, but you can't know God's self or the world. And so what happened was instead of assuming that theology brings its own sources, you need then, if you're going to try to make theology into a an object of knowledge, um, you have to redefine it and put some other discipline at the head uh, in order to get to a place where you can call it a knowing. What is the object that you're trying to know? Well, apologetics in that context does not mean what, what, what we would probably define apologetics as. Mm. Um, it, apologetics in that context is typically more like sociology. Um, it's trying to say, well, uh, let me show you 
uh, about the facts of the development of the church in history in order to find a new basis to call theology knowledge. And so, for example, uh, Schleiermacher puts apologetics at, at the beginning of, of his work in order to say that uh, the historical church is uh, a church that that confesses Jesus Christ of Nazareth consistently throughout its history. And so if we want to develop um, a theology that's actually knowing something, we can learn and know the consciousness of the historical church in its development. And then we can say, well, what, what is our current communal consciousness about God as it relates to this history of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? So the object of theology now for, for him is no longer God as God has made himself known in his revelation mm. is the community, the communal consciousness that gathers together to worship this, this God. Uh, but he's not actually looking at God directly and saying yeah. theology. I'm trying to know God. He's used apologetics, a sociology really to say that we can look at the community to say things about God. Wow. That really explains. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that that totally explains why they call him the the father of modern liberalism. Like that, you can see following that trajectory all the way up to today in in mainline churches. Right, right. So, it, the, putting what happens is it, when you put apologetics at, at the head of your of your work, you're, you're saying that you're you're saying that God. If you're, if you're doing it like a modernist does it, you're saying that God is not the object of knowledge. Hmm. It's not, it's not an object of knowledge. It's not the object of theology. Yeah. But that's what's happening. That's really helpful. Yeah, thanks. Great. Anything to add on that? Or Amen. <laughs> awesome. Well, I wanted to jump in uh, to a couple of random questions as we as we close up here. Um, where, where should people, I meant to do this in the beginning, where should people start if they want to get into Bavink? Um, probably not with Christian worldview, though. Maybe you might say that they should. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you guys think they should start? Probably the wonderful works of God, I would say, hmm. is a great place to start. It was a book that was written for um, for a, a working adult that, that has a, that has a, somewhat of an education, you know. But um, yeah, yeah, there, there, yeah. Um, there will be another. There's a translation going on of another short dogma theological summary that that was originally written for for teenagers that Bob mm-hmm. did. And that translation project, I believe, is underway right now. Gray might know more, but um, that that will be when that does come out. That'll be a really great uh, place to start. The the title of it is is escaping me right now, but you're still muted there, Gray. Oh, my bad. Yeah, the handbook yeah. of Christian instruction or something. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be translated by Greg Parker and Cam Clausing, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Greg let that slip uh, to me the other day. Yeah, it sounds awesome. It sounds go. amazing. I wish he wouldn't have because now I, I'm just dying to get it out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah well, that'll be a great resource. But the wonderful works of God uh, right now uh, is a great place to get a, yeah. a, and a good place to start. Okay. Yeah, if you're a theologian philosopher already, then I think philosophy of revelation, Christian yeah. worldview, that's where... That's where the heavy, heavy hitting is. Yeah. Well, um, so on that note, um, Bavink talks about um, man as being and becoming. And uh, some Dr. Eglinton kind of pointed to in his work. And then I, I believe that's in uh, Christian worldview. What do you guys think about that? Do you guys, you guys follow him in that thinking? And actually, can one of you parse out why that would be kind of a strange thing to say? Man as being and becoming? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that comes out in his dogmatics, also in his Christian worldview. I mean, it's pretty pretty ubiquitous. I think where okay. where he says that. I think you know that that's a way for him to subvert Hegel, which um, where Hegel says that God is being and becoming. You know, <laughs> Boving says God is being never changing, immutable, simple, and so on. And man is being and becoming, right? So mm-hmm. we are the ones who are developing. We are the ones who are dependent, depending on the world, right? We are the ones suffering and hence growing teleologically. We are uh, the organisms, in other words, right? Whereas God is not part of the organism. And that's another thing we got to point out is that Boving never describes God as an organism because God is without parts. God is simple. Yeah. But we are organic. So I think... Uh, um, yeah, that's probably what I would say with that. I don't know if you had something else in, in view, Parker. Yeah, Corey, do you want to jump in? Oh, uh, I think it. I mean, my understanding of it is that it's a it's a rel- it's it's a way of saying in modern grammar, Hegelian grammar, that that we change and God doesn't. And and uh, I think that's all Bobbing really means by that. It's the same thing as talking about the immediate consciousness and the temporal consciousness in in that era. So again, immediate consciousness is the identity of the self that is given, right? That does not change. You know, Gray is the same I that he was when he was a two-year-old as he is right now. He is mm. still that ego. Uh, but at the same time, in his temporal consciousness, he's had so many interactions with the world outside of them and within his own development that he is very different now. Uh, yeah. Not in every way. He's still some ways like a, like a toddler. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> but um yeah so so i think that's all it means by it okay well th- and that's helpful to me when i first read it i think that uh dr eglinton dr eglinton kind of put it in the reader's mind like oh this is kind of interesting and i thought about it and i thought well okay how about how about my dog is my dog purely becoming and no being um is it is my being in reference to being an image bearer of god there's something eternal about me my my eternal soul, even though it has a begin point, has no end point. Whereas my maybe my dog doesn't have a soul, and my dog is just becoming. Is the rest of creation becoming, and just man is the because we're image bearer of God, we are being and becoming. Have, is there anything there, or is he just he's just using that terminology to um, talk about uh, immediate consciousness and temporal uh, awareness kind of stuff? Gray's an expert on animal eschatology, so. <laughs> Not, not not animals in general, just puppy eschatology. So it's okay. very <laughs> no well, I, interesting I, questions. Yeah, I, I think the answer to that is I don't know. I think it depends on where you view the animal world and self consciousness with regard to the animal world. Um, and there's probably a debate out there about that. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of debates out there, especially as people become more and more uh, comfortable with dog mom language. Uh, the, the debates get hotter and hotter. Uh, I'm, I'm talking with a, a Christian philosopher about phenomenal consciousness tomorrow, and it's so cool because our conversation today, even though you might pit it more in the anal, uh, continental side, mm-hmm. I, it's finally coming over into the analytic side. People are finally starting to talk about self-consciousness and what it means to be human as being self-conscious versus conscious. And I'm really excited about that debate. And I think yeah. Bob Inc., it's gonna it's gonna pop up. He's gonna become even more relevant as that conversation grows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, uh, we had Chris Watkin for our TSDC podcast, and I, he said, I impishly asked what he thought about the analytic continental divide. And he, he said, very wryly, he said, um, the analytic continental divide is so 1990s. <laughs> he says, mm-hmm. there's so much more 
cross pollination now. I mean, uh, on my shelf there, I think there, there's a book by I think uh, I can't remember his name. I got to look at it, but basically Hegel for analytic philosophy or something, you know, or hmm. Hegel after analytic philosophy. And so there's a lot more cross pollination. Kevin Hector's book, Theology, the Theology of Modernism, I think. Uh, for OUP's analytic theology series. Okay. That book is really an exposition of Schleiermacher, Hegel, and Kant in analytic terms. So definitely a lot of cross-pollination. And I think hopefully phenomenology would not be looked at as the as the boogeyman, as yeah. it normally is in the analytic world. And if you take a look at you know Heidegger, kind of the fir- first guys who did phenomenology, his education was in Augustine, Bonaventure. I mean, he was actually commenting on these guys as yeah. he was studying theology. Uh, for his, you know, initial studies. So I think there's lots of these roots in the classical tradition, and maybe the whole phenomenology versus analytic, phenomenology versus the classical divide should also be brought down. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to. It. I, I think it's happening, and I'm excited to to see Bavink uh, be put in conversation or be brought back into that conversation as well. Um, I wanted to ask you guys real quick if you could. Uh, one of you, both of you, could lay out the uh, the different principiums, uh, ascendi, cognoscendi, internum, externum, just for my listeners. It's really cool language, and I don't want them to be scared of that. I want them to to grab onto that. Can you guys explain what, what those terms mean? Maybe what Bavink meant by them? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sure. Um, so for Bavink, uh, the principle of being is, is God himself. He's the origin of all being. Right. And then he has a pr- principle of knowing. So these are, these are the grounds of theology and the principle of knowing he subdivides into an internal principle and an external principle. And in all of these way, in all the, the principium of theology, really the best way to, to think about it is that God is the answer. So mm. um, the principium of knowing, uh, externally is is God's speech, God's revelation. And and so if you think uh, the principium of being itself, you, you could attribute to the Father, who is the ground of all, all being, and the principium of knowing externally uh, in revelation is the work of the Son, who is the Logos, the speech of God. And then there's principium internum, that's um, uh, the revelation of God's self to the self by the work of the Holy Spirit. That So the Holy Spirit receives the speech of the son uh, of God through the son in, in the human self. And so um, you, you have uh, the work of father, son and spirit at extra in that revelatory frame that, that creates the framework of all theology. Mm, that's good. And that, that ties back in again to the organic motif because, uh, because well, as the, the pithy saying goes, Trinity ad, ad intra, um, not necessitates uh, leads to, or, uh, Gray, you use it. What, what is it? it yeah, Trinity, Trinity, ad, tr- Trinity ad intra implies, implies. organism ad extra, yes. something like that. Yes. Yeah, I probably use different terms here and there. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think with the organic motif in place, the principia becomes more flexible too. There is a, hmm. it becomes, you know, I think, I think, whereas in some of the more reform scholastic uses of it, you know, the principia is very, very strict. The principia for theology is this, and the principia of you know, the other sciences are that. Whereas I think with the organic motif in place, we can freely draw from different principia without compromising, you know, the differing grounds. I think sphere sovereignty plays a role in this too, yeah. because each sphere has their own principia, so to speak. But at the same time, there's a unity undergirding the differing spheres of life. So I think there's a more holistic way of, of, of using and talking about the principia here. 
Yeah. Okay. And so in, in the organic, uh, in viewing, we don't want to say God is organic, but God is unity and diversity in, in that he is Trinity at intra. Uh, and there we find Van Til says uh, equal ultimacy of unity and diversity. But then Bavink says in creation, there is a priority of the whole against the part, you know, the, that unity comes first. Um, yeah. Is th- I'm, I'm still kind of curious on that. Is that because like the plan of God is the unity of creation? Like what, why does he have prioritized whole over parts there? Yeah, great question. I think I think if you take a look at RD2, his argument on creation there, he talks about the unity of the will of God, that the Trinity has one will, right? There's mm-hmm. no three wills, no order of authority and submission to all of you EFS trigger folks there, no order <laughs> right. of that in, in, involving. There's only one will in God, and that unity of will means there's a unity in creation. Mm. For some reason, he, he really tethers the two here together. And I think that's pretty much in keeping with classical orthodox doctrine of God and creation. Mm. Um, and so with regard to creation, I think definitely the diversity of parts in creation is, is relativized by, is undergirded by a greater unity that upholds it all. And I think ultimately, Bavink says Christians are better able to account for that unity. Now, I don't think he compromises you know, equal ultimacy between unity and diversity in God. I mean, Bavink explicitly says that here and there. But I do think there's something about creation as being the result of the will of God that that accounts for the greater emphasis on the unity of the whole. Okay. That's good, man. I, I, I still got to think through that stuff a lot. That's, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really good. Something that I, I come back to as well. I mean, somebody yesterday just asked me about that. And I said, I can't remember I wrote that, but but I did. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I just wanted to, to to finish up here with with some stuff that I've taken away from you guys' works, um, and I wrote it really sloppily. But uh, Corey, your work really encouraged me in uh, thinking through what I want to see uh, true evangelicalism look like. Uh, not you know this this orthodox yet modern, and I and not modern of Bavink's day, but of our day. That I think evangelicalism rightly understood is. Yeah, culturally in, uh, affirming, transforming, uh, engaging, but yet we're we're we have the fundamentals of the fundamentalists, though not their curmudgeonness towards uh, culture. I think that your work actually provides like this way forward through this hundred-year-old theologian. I was really really encouraged by that, and I want to see more people keep that evangelical word. Hopefully, it's not too tainted, it's not too far gone, but be evangelicals in the way that Bavink was an evangelical, and then. Um, Great man, your your work on epistemology is so encouraging that we don't have to pick a team and we don't have to, I'm this. And that means that if I'm an internalist, I have to hate externalists and I have to destroy you guys. And, but we can, in a Bavinkian fashion, hey, there's some stuff that there's this and there's this. And I think it's a little bit more complex and I'm going to eat the meat and I'm going to spit the bones where I need to. So again, that was, that was super, super encouraging. And then something I've seen in both of you guys is that... Um, there's this kind of like Schaeferian, you know, following Schaefer that there's this line of despair here. And we need to really, if we just would go back before then, everything would be cool. And what I've learned from both of you guys' work is like, there's no going back. We're downstream of this stuff. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily desirable to want to go back. Right. God is sovereign over the whole thing. And he's moving us forward and armed with the organic mo- motif. Like we can be blessed by uh, non-Christian work and then we can subvert it and show how it's true um, culmination is found in a Christian philosophy of life. So I just, yeah, I've been yeah. really encouraged by you guys. Yeah. 
Thanks so much, Parker. Yeah, that that that's massive, man. And I think um, I I fear that this looking to the past can become a kind of unhealthy nostalgia. Yeah. When I think you know, as Boving says in his modernism and orthodoxy, we are children of our time, yeah. and there's no ungratefulness. You know, we would be ungrateful, in other words, to God if we were just disdaining everything around us. So I think to be realistic, we have to be children of our time, and to be grateful to the Lord, we have to be cognizant that He's still at work even today. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So I'm I'm really looking forward. I, I think that uh, we we talked about continental and analytic. I think Bavink uh, can speak into that. I also think that. In the coming months and years, we need to have more unity in the church. And I think the organic motif actually, I mean, you guys know, it provides the foundation for unity in the church, but not uniformity, as Kuiper says, as Bavink says. So I'm really, I'm excited to see some unity and diversity happening in our churches more and more. Um, and I hope that the people will take up Bavink and apply it to their lives. Uh, I, I love this conversation. This was awesome. I kept smiling the whole time because this is like a dream come true talking with you guys. I'd love to have you guys back on, talk about your future works, talk more about these works. So just open invitation. Please come back on and school us more on Bob Inc. and your own thought. Yeah, thanks, Parker. We'd love to. Yeah, for sure. This was good fun. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, that's going to have to do it. Uh, we could talk about this more. Lord willing, we're going to someday. But uh, for now, that's it. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.